Currently, one of Harutz's most popular articles published this morning once again uses archaeology to try and debunk Bible history. This time, it's the history related to Judah's longest-serving monarch, King Manasseh. On today's program, let's review the article and with it their misreading of the biblical narrative. In doing so, we'll actually discover one of the most undervalued histories of repentance in the Bible. Crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace, and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brett Nuktagal, your host for today's show. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to Christopher Reams for taking last week's program. If you haven't listened to that, you can go ahead and he recaps a bunch of uh, discoveries of the past summer and then also some of our most recent and popular articles on archaeology and biblical history that f- are featured on our website, watchjerusalem.co.il. Today, I'd like to talk about an article at Haaretz, and not just the article itself, but also just using this as a a way to get into the Bible more and into archaeology and showing how they both still go hand in hand, even though there are attempts often and always to discredit the biblical narrative as being historically accurate based on science and archaeological discovery. And Haaretz is one of the best, I would say, newspapers uh, inside Israel that is reporting on archaeological discovery, but often the case is that their reading of the history or the archaeologists that they quote tend to come from one school of thought, a school that likes to debase the Bible as being historically inaccurate and riddled with error in many ways. Uh, Today, we're just going to look at this article, which covers the reign of King Manasseh. If you're unfamiliar with him, Uh, That's uh, okay. Uh, He is the king that followed King Hezekiah, someone we talk a lot about because of both his righteousness and how much history has proven the reign of King Hezekiah, the fact that he existed, the fact that the Assyrian, Assyrian army came up against him, led by King Sennacherib, and how God intervened on behalf of Jerusalem, the city that God had chosen, and the line of King David ruling from that city. After him was the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh. And he reigned for 55 years, the longest serving monarch. And most of his reign was uh, unrighteous, meaning that he did a lot of horrific acts. And the Bible talks about those in detail. And this Haaretz article focuses on that. Uh, as well as, as it would say, that the way that the Bible doesn't discuss the great accomplishments of King Hezekiah. We're going to just start off with reading through part of this article, and then I'll address some historical claims and biblical claims that are, are factually true and inaccurate. It's entitled, Israeli Archaeologists Are Uncovering the Lost Legacy of a Cursed Biblical King. The quip, the Bible describes King Manasseh as the wickedest monarch to ever rule in Jerusalem, but now discoveries show his reign brought peace and prosperity to the first temple period Judah. Starting the article written by Ariel David here, um, 
one of their archaeological writers does a pretty good job uh, often. Uh, in this case, I feel like there's a little bit lacking, uh, as we'll cover. This biblical king reigned in Jerusalem longer than any monarch in the kingdom of Judah. He brought half a century of peace and prosperity marked by monumental construction projects and international trade. We are not talking about the exalted King Solomon or other semi-mythological monarchs in the first temple period, but of a later figure, the much-despised King Manasseh. The reason, Ariel writes, uh, Ariel David writes, the reason you may have heard little or nothing about this king who reigned in the first half of the 7th century BCE is that the Bible co-signs him to the dustbin of history in less than a chapter, 2 Kings chapter 21. And so the Bible does say that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yes, 2 Kings chapter 21 does go through those details. But actually, the Bible has two chapters about King Manasseh. Two chapters. Uh, you can go ahead and read this, and we're going to read part of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Because that, too, discusses Manasseh. So, in fact, there isn't just one chapter. There is two chapters about King Manasseh. And had uh, the author read the second chapter uh, about Manasseh, Second Chronicles uh, chapter 33, which isn't referenced once in this article, you would actually clear up a lot of the mystique uh, or the mystery, let's put it that way, about some of the archaeological discoveries that have been made during his time. And that is what is so frustrating. That's what's so frustrating about this article, and most of them of these, this ilk, is that there is a misreading of the Bible and just a flat-out ignorance of one of the full, one chapter in the entire Bible, the parallel account in the book of Chronicles that details the life of this king. Now, as we as we teach uh, in, in our History of Ancient Israel class, if you're going to understand or, or at least uh, put stack up archaeology, you need a number of things, stack up archaeology to the Bible. You need to be talking on, in the same terms. So you have to get your dating right. What's the date of the event, as far as we can tell, of the biblical event? And what is the date of what you have found in archaeology of that stuff to try and match it to the period of the Bible that the Bible is describing? So you need that. But you also need to know, first of all, an accurate portrayal of what the Bible actually says, not what you think it says, uh, just from your memory. Go back to the source. Read all the documents you can surrounding the life of the individual as based on the Bible. Produce a clear picture of what the Bible describes, sounds logical, and then go ahead and compare it to what has been discovered from that same time period in the places at which the Bible describes that king or that event or that person being active. That is how you can compare the two. And it seems to me from this article, and it even states it in the second paragraph, that they haven't even considered the Second Chronicles account of King Manasseh. And when you don't consider that, you miss out the repentance of this king because uh, the account in Kings, the book of Kings, doesn't include the repentance of Manasseh. And yet most of the verses, most of the story uh, attached to Manasseh in Chronicles is what happens post-repentance. And that post-repentance period includes a period of great building, a period of great building underneath Manasseh's reign. And we will read a few verses of that uh, here in a second. But first, getting back to this article. But just have that in mind, that there is a chapter of the Bible that Haaretz is either missing or uh, doesn't know about or has deliberately chosen not to include in this article. I believe that they actually are just missing it because 
Um, he says that there's only one chapter that the Bible describes King Manasseh in, when in fact there are two. Now, what is interesting about this second account of Manasseh uh, from Chronicles, and these are these are parallel accounts, meaning that they are meant to uh, help out the understanding of the other. Perhaps there's more information available to the writer of it at the time that that is being written. And of course, when you're talking about Chronicles that was written during Ezra's time, this is a time that was after the the southern kingdom of Judah had gone into Babylonian captivity and returned. The exiles had returned. And so the Chronicles is going to have a very different focus than the focus of the book of Kings that was written uh, from or during the reign or around the reign of King Josiah's time, perhaps even by Jeremiah the prophet himself, before they went into captivity. And so we can see the reasons of why Ezra would have included the repentance of the wicked King Manasseh and what happened thereafter and the, the blessings that God gave him thereafter. You would see why Ezra would want to include that because they were experiencing a type of that themselves. The people that were in the post-exilic community in Jerusalem, they had just suffered a national exile and now they're back trying to rebuild trying to need God's help or needing God's help in that. And so why not discuss the beautiful repentance of Manasseh in, in that context as a way of encouraging the people that were there back in Judea following the Babylonian captivity? Back to this article now uh, from Haaretz. Manasseh or Manasseh in Hebrew is described by the Holy Text as the prototypical sinner one of the many ancient Israelite kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Indeed, he writes, it would seem that during his 55-year-long reign, the king was preoccupied with promoting various idolatrous practices, allegedly incurring the wrath of God. Manasseh evoked such ire that he single-handedly is single-handedly blamed for the later destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple at the hands of the Babylonians. So he quotes through this. Um, but again, that is what Kings describes, and he was a wicked king. I mean, you can look at the accounts in Second Kings, uh, and one of the verses there talks about him passing through or putting his sons through the fire. He actually put uh, children of the Davidic line through the fire. That means human sacrifice of his own son to pagan gods, even if it isn't to pagan gods. That's a pretty horrific act. That he, that he went through with his own children, I would say that's a pretty bad thing to do. And that's what the Bible describes. And that there would be wrath that comes upon them because of that. That is, again, exactly what the Bible describes. But that's not to say that Manasseh wasn't warned of his wicked ways. Uh, he was, as the Bible brings out also. Continuing the article, now, however, some archaeologists say that recent finds reveal Manasseh's forgotten legacy and cast him in a much different light. New discoveries and more accurate dating techniques paint the historical Manasseh as a capable ruler who brought Judah back from the brink of destruction after a failed revolt against the Assyrian Empire and nursed his kingdom uh, to prosperity and stability. If correct, the new theory would be only the latest case in which the biblical narrative does not match up with the archaeological record. It is no coincidence that the emerging paradigm on Manasseh is being championed mainly by archaeologists from Tel Aviv University who have long been at the forefront of the skeptical camp in the debate over the historicity of the Bible. 
that paragraph, that last paragraph there is true. It's no wonder that this is coming out of Tel Aviv University because they are the leading proponents of this theory that is extremely skeptical of the Bible or just downright says it's making it up in some cases. And this is where this theory comes from. But I do take exception to this idea that if correct, this new theory would bring only the latest case in which the biblical narrative does match up with the archaeological record. So as I said before, the test, what's the test? The test to see if something adds up or matches up to the biblical record is to go back to the Bible, read all the information that you have available, and then stack it up to the archaeology. And what is he saying that they have discovered that doesn't match up with the Bible? He's saying in that previous chapter, some archaeologists say, see previous verse, uh, sorry, previous paragraph, some archaeologists say that recent finds reveal Manasseh's forgotten legacy and cast him in a much different light. New discoveries and more accurate dating techniques paint the historical Manasseh as a capable ruler who brought Judah back from the brink of destruction after a failed revolt against the Assyrian Empire and nursed the kingdom back to prosperity and stability. So he's going to go through these examples to show that archaeology we in, in archaeology we have a lot of these buildings that have been found in and around Jerusalem that dates to the latter part of Hezekiah's reign or Manasseh's period and they are large they are indicating an indication of prosperity there is construction projects going on and he's saying that the bible doesn't paint that picture that under Manasseh that we shouldn't be seeing that he was just wicked and didn't did horrible things And the Bible records nothing positive, no building about him. Okay, well, what does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible actually say? Now, there is an interesting paragraph, uh, interesting subhead, debunking the mystique of King Hezekiah. And it goes on to say, just the theory of Finkelstein, that a lot of the things that we say Hezekiah did or Hezekiah built, actually they were built by, uh, in many ways, Manasseh. He, Finkelstein says that for the Bible, Hezekiah was a great wise king and Manasseh was the worst of all. Archaeology shows the exact, exact opposite. Hezekiah's brought, you know, carelessly brought destruction upon Judah with his revolt, while Manasseh is the one that saved it. Well, not really. Uh, there was a revolt that, that Hezekiah did against uh, the king of Assyria, and that revolt was, I'm refusing to pay you. Uh, we're going to trust God. And so the Assyrians, as all good kings did at that time, came down to try and uh, ensure that Judah would come to heel and start paying again. And Sennacherib did start taking over all the cities of Judah. And yes, Sennacherib almost destroyed Jerusalem in the sense that he was there. He was knocking on the door of Jerusalem. And yet who saved? Who saved Judah and who saved Jerusalem? It was God under the hand of of, uh, Hezekiah when he actually finally repented. And then there's no destruction. No destruction. And these anti-biblical scholars have no uh, recorded, uh, well, they have their ideas and their theories about why the king might have, as he's knocking on Judah's capital, retreated back to Babylon. But nobody has a clue except for what the Bible says. The Bible says that God destroyed the army. He went. He was going to go back, or he went back to uh, went back uh, up to Assyria and was there put to death, eventually, by a couple of one of his sons. That happened. History tells us that happened. And the 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 Taylor prism or a prism that was about Sennacherib writes the fact that he caged Hezekiah up like a like a bird in Jerusalem, 
but didn't conquer it. Doesn't say he wiped it up, wiped it out. Doesn't say that he brought King Hezekiah back to Assyria with a hook or a, a ring in through his nose. Nothing, nothing like that. And that's what a lot of the time these Assyrian kings did. So who saved? Who saved Judah? Well, it was actually when Hezekiah turned to God. But he's saying that Manasseh is the one actually that saved Judah. Well, um, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true, at least if you believe that if you believe the Bible. The next couple of paragraphs, they are going to talk about recent discoveries that were made in and around Jerusalem. And these are discoveries actually that we talk about as well in our latest edition of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. Christopher Eames has an article in here. It's entitled A Summer of uh, Summer of Discovery or Summer of Archaeological Discovery. A Summer of Discoveries from King Hezekiah's Jerusalem. And we talk about how following Hezekiah's reign, well, following the, let's say, when the Assyrian army leave, left, there was a necessity to start building things all through the land of Judah because it was wasted. It was wasted by the Assyrians. And you actually see this taking place in Bet Shemesh, and that was one of the big discoveries from last year, I think, or the year before, how that immediately following the, uh, the destruction of Bet Shemesh, you had a massive revitalization of the city during Hezekiah's time, just after the Assyrians, the Syrian king, returned back to Assyria. But what also we talk about in this period is that these buildings continue to be used into Manasseh's reign. We don't deny that. We talk about that. But it's who you're going to give credit to. Are you going to give credit to the, uh, the, thriving, um, the thriving period in the early 7th century BCE to Manasseh, or are you going to give credit to it uh, when Hezekiah uh, turns to God? That's And the Bible gives credit, most of the credit for that, to Hezekiah. And then it talks about Manasseh's reign. But then it also talks about Manasseh's building projects. One other thing it talks about here, Manasseh's tunnel is the next subhead in this Haaretz article. And this is just really interesting because it attempts to put the, the dating of Hezekiah's tunnel as we know it today. And as you can walk through it in the city of David into the period of Manasseh. Is it Manasseh's tunnel, not Hezekiah's tunnel? This is uh, what we have, uh, what they have written in this article here. It's even possible that important monuments in Jerusalem itself, so far attributed to other kings, may have been built during Manasseh's time, he adds. This is talking about Yuval Gadot, uh, the current excavator of the Gavadi parking lot excavation in the city of David. He says this, the... Uh, uh, he adds, this might be the case for the so-called Hezekiah's Tunnel, a large channel carved in the bedrock underneath Jerusalem to divert the water from the main local spring into the city walls. This impressive engineering feat traditionally attributed to Hezekiah and believed to have have been part of his preparations instead of the Sennacherib's, in, ahead of the Sennacherib siege. But this interpretation has no firm archaeological foundation. It's mostly based on the biblical Bible's aggrandizement of Hezekiah's deeds, Gadot says. In fact, digging, then he writes, uh, Ariel, in fact, digging a 500-meter-long tunnel through hard rock doesn't sound like part of the hurried preparations ahead of the siege. It seems more appropriate to pattern, to the pattern of major Assyrian-influenced water engineering projects that date after the siege. So, you know, the Bible says that there was a tunnel described. It actually describes it in two locations— 
in the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings. It talks about a conduit being, it offers an absolutely perfect description of what happens here to the water source in Jerusalem and the tunneling uh, that Hezekiah did and why he did it. So um, it makes sense then that it was during Hezekiah's time. Why? Well, let's let's just let's just analyze if it makes logical sense that this say this this tunnel was built. I don't know, forty years later, underneath Manasseh's reign. Now, what is the purpose of the Hezekiah's tunnel? If you've been through it, you know what it's like. You go down to the Gihon Spring, which is just to the eastern side of the city of David, down in the valley. You enter. Uh, the Gihon Spring chambers there. And just as you enter the Gihon Spring, or just before the actual spring, you'll notice to your left, it's called the Dry Tunnel, the Canaanite Tunnel. This is the tunnel that the water used to travel through before Hezekiah's tunnel was built, before this other tunnel, let's just call it the other tunnel, was built. So you had, before Hezekiah's tunnel, another tunnel. And what did this tunnel do? It brought forth the water, just like Hezekiah's does, And it brought it forth to the bottom of the city. But instead of going inside the city walls, it was outside the city walls. Okay, that was the one that was previous to Hezekiah. And the Bible talks about how Hezekiah decided that he was not going, he was going to change that because he says, why should it be that the kings of Assyria come here and they find lots of water? So he was going to direct it inwards to come underneath the ground in a very curvy way <laughs> to the inside the city walls at the bottom of the city of David. So they say that, you know, it looks, this is such amazing feat that he couldn't have done it while he was preparing for the siege. Well, you know, if you have two teams from either side and they're working like crazy, they suspect it could have been done in a year. Now the entire siege, the entire conquest of Sennacheribs of Judah took that time at least. So they knew it was coming. So you do have time for Hezekiah to build it. So let's say he didn't build it. Let's say Manasseh built it. Why did Manasseh build it? The whole context of this article is showing that Manasseh was under the thumb of the Assyrians already. And indeed he was. So why would he, if he's under the thumb of the Assyrians and he's working with the Assyrians and paying the Assyrians tribute, why would he construct, have a clandestine project to stop the water from being without the city? It was going to the same place eventually. This water, whether it goes through the original tunnel or this next tunnel, was going down uh, close to, generally to the bottom of the city of David. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? This is somebody that is worried, that is building this, that is worried about a foreign takeover. And yet this whole article is to show that um, Assyria had already taken over. So why would King Manasseh go to all of this effort? And we have a historical source that puts it in Hezekiah's time. And we have a logical reason for why Hezekiah would construct it. Because if he constructed this Hezekiah's tunnel, this lower tunnel, this tunnel that went inside the city walls, this previous tunnel that had water in it would not have water in it. The Assyrian kings, as the besieging this city, would not have access to water. So it makes sense, given the political climate of the Assyrians and whether they had conquered or whether they were going to come back and do it, or whether they, the, uh, as it was under Manasseh's time, that the Assyrians were that Judah was actually a vassal state. Um, it makes more sense that this was created under a king that was trying to protect the water source, rather than under a king that was already under the Assyrian hold. So that doesn't even make sense. And what's really concerning about this whole subhead here 
is that it undermines some of the greatest proof, some of the greatest proof that we have for King Hezekiah and what he did. I mean, the Bible describes this so well, this construction of Hezekiah's tunnel and why he does it. So I thought that was just a little bizarre point to put in there. Okay, just continuing on, there is a couple more quotes that I want to uh, read about or read in this article. This is right at the end. This talks about, uh, this is quoting Israel Finkelstein now. Manasseh becomes the tool to explain the destruction of the temple, Finkelstein concludes. He is the scapegoat of the Bible, even though he actually was the one who brought Judah back to life. He's a scapegoat of the Bible. And uh, the Bible is wrong when it's describing him. We just look around, you see every all the building under Manasseh's time, and that's not what the Bible talks about. So the Bible is incorrect. And in fact, King Manasseh, the wicked king, who does turn righteous, but they don't even discuss that, um, he was the great one. Now, this is normal and par for the course for Tel Aviv University, because for some reason, if the Bible says something is good, Tel Aviv University says that king was bad. If the Bible talks about, I mean, the Bible talks about King David as being good, though he had lots of sins and describes the kingdom of David, Tel Aviv University and Israel Finkelstein says, well, it's actually talking about the reign of, uh, of Jeroboam II, the king, northern king of Israel who was wicked. That is what the Bible is talking about when it's David. If the Bible says that Manasseh is bad, he must have been good. If the Bible describes that Hezekiah was good, he must have been bad. That just seems to be the reasoning from what we can tell. Two last paragraphs here. The theological contortions of biblical scribes who lived more than 2,500 years ago have had far-reaching consequences in today's Israel, where archaeology is often wielded as a political tool to highlight the roots of the modern Jewish state in the biblical past, regardless of whether that past is heros, heroc, yeah, histori- sorry, historically accurate. A lack of detachment from the biblical ideology can lead to biased research, Finkelstein asserts. In this case, it has pushed experts to attribute pretty much any remains from the late 8th and 7th century BCE to Hezekiah or Josiah, ignoring Manasseh's likely role. By reconstructing the story of Manasseh, archaeology is bringing back to life a voice that was covered up, Gadot says. This is biblical archaeology at its best. Then he says we shouldn't abandon the Bible completely, but we need to use it critically, distinguishing between what is theologically, theological, political, and historical to better understand the archaeological finds. Okay, let's read what the Bible says. So they found some construction that they date to King King Manasseh's time, and they say that this is this kind of construction isn't warranted in the Bible. The Bible's wrong. The Bible says Manasseh did all the great things, and sorry, that uh, Hezekiah did all the great things, and Manasseh was wicked. Let's look at what the Chronicles account says. And the Chronicles account isn't mentioned anywhere in this article. A full chapter of the Bible is not uh, mentioned. A full chapter that discusses King Manasseh's life and what he did. And I would say that Manasseh, if you know uh, your Bible and and archaeology as well, Manasseh has come up on other documents from other powers. Actually, one of the the kings, uh, one of the kings, Esarhaddon, who was one of the youngest son of Sennacherib, it actually says that he, he had... Um, brought Manasseh as a vassal. He says, King of Yehudi, 
and Manasseh, which is basically Manasseh, king of Judah, he mentions him on what's now become known as Esarhaddon's prism. And we have an article on that at Watch Jerusalem as well. And Esarhaddon prism proves King Manasseh. So this is a proven historical figure outside the Bible found on Assyrian documents from 2,700 years ago. King Manasseh. King Manasseh from the Bible. Let's not focus on that part, they would say. But notice this account in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 10. This talks about all the wickedness that was done by Manasseh. Indeed it was. That's what the Bible says. But the next half of this chapter is all about what happened next. And the Eternal spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. They wouldn't listen to what God warned them about what was going to come. Wherefore, the Eternal brought upon the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him away to Babylon. You look at other translations. This talks about Manasseh, the Assyrians coming and actually grabbing Manasseh and putting a hook through his nose and his lips and dragging him off to Babylon. King Manasseh. What happened there? And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into the kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the eternal he was God. Now, we don't have this found in history just yet outside the Bible. But what this says is you have, yes, the most wicked king possible in Judah, ever. And he repented. God brought him into captivity personally. And while there, he was humbled. And he humbled himself. And he cried out to God. And he prayed to God. And of course, the biblical scholars or the archaeological scholars aren't going to believe this history. But it could be a good reason as to why and how we find archaeological remains from King Manasseh's time. And not just archaeological remains. I mean, a period in which Jerusalem and the round, roundabout uh, environs was th- flourishing. Notice this. Now, after this, after he goes back, after he re- after he is entreated of God and he's actually being good now, good Manasseh we're talking about. Again, no mention of good Manasseh in the Haaretz article. Now, after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of the Gihon in the valley, even to the entering of the fish gate, and encompassed the, about the Ophel to the northern part of the city of David and raised it up a very great height and, and put captains of war over all the fenced cities of Judah. And then it goes and talks about how he started to cleanse the temple. And then it talks about how he started to offer sacrifices again. Verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spoke unto him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated of him and all of his sin and his trespass and the places wherein he built high places and had set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. Now, we don't have the sayings of the seers anymore, but Ezra did when he was compiling this. And it's talking about after the time that he repented, After the time he was brought to Babylon, or he was taken away and carried away by the Assyrian kings and then prays to God, humbles himself, and God's entreated by him, he comes back and what's he do? He builds. And Judah flourishes. Judah flourishes. 
And that's what we have in the archaeological discoveries that they're trying to describe in this article. A flourishing Judah that they say is not, uh, does not parallel what the Bible says about Manasseh. Well, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> Don't forget about 2 Chronicles chapter 33. You've missed a whole chapter of the Bible. If you're going to come out and discredit the Bible as being accurate with archaeological finds, you can't miss out an entire chapter of the biblical text in that comparison. You just can't do it. And what they're doing as well through this, it isn't, doesn't, it isn't just about the physical discoveries. It's about this incredible history of a man, the most wicked man, the most wicked king in ancient Judah, repenting, turning back to God, and then blessing his life with beautiful construction projects in and around Jerusalem as well. That is the true story of Manasseh, the whole story of Manasseh. And it is a story that biblical archaeology also does support. That's all we have time for today on this program. Please go ahead and read these articles. I'll leave them in the show notes for you. Esther Haddon Prism proves King Manasseh. That was written last year by Warren Reinch. And then also this latest article in our latest edition of the Watch Jerusalem print magazine, A Summer of Discoveries from King Hezekiah's Jerusalem by Christopher Eames. If you haven't got a copy of the Watch Jerusalem magazine, it's free. It goes anywhere around the world. You can write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il for a free subscription and we'll do our best to send you one as soon as we can. Thank you very much for listening again and I'll talk to you next week.